popular culture and you. Now I know what you're thinking. I'm an upstanding sophisticate. I'm not into the latest trends and popular music, video games, comic books, movies, fast food chains, and commercial products. So how does popular culture or pop culture affect me? Well, I think you'd be surprised at how much popular culture permeates your day-to-day life, the course of your life, and the world surrounding you. Here at Popular Culture University, we strive to make the camouflage world around you come forth and present you with what you didn't realize was so obvious before. Now, the Pop Culture University isn't a university you can walk to or drive to, but it's a university of the mind. Students to the Pop Culture University podcast. I am your instructor, Michael Gaddy, and with me, yes, uh, with me as always, hush you. Uh, with me as always is the Smithers to my Mr. Burns. Excellent. Thanks, candy. Uh, Joe Guani. Howdy, 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 howdy. I'm giving him candy. Sorry. Ooh, piece of candy. <laughs> uh, today we're going to be talking about. Oh damn. Uh, <laughs> we messed up. We tried recording. We got about. 30 minutes in, and then I accidentally unplugged it, which it didn't save a single thing. So this is take two of the first half an hour of this podcast. Maybe we won't go on and on about stupid things, although nothing was stupid. It, it was wonderful. Stupid. It was funny. It was hilarious, and you're never going to experience it, because nope, we won't remember. Anyways, today we're going to be talking about <laughs> video games. Video games? Yes, I know this is shocked you, but we're going to be talking about video games and consoles. Mostly video game consoles. But we have to talk about the birth of the video game industry and how video games were made. First, we want to talk about pinball. Fun game. Yes. But and, my mom's uh, favorite. I enjoyed it myself from time to time. And uh, the thing about pinball was, yeah, they used to have machines that would pay out. Like money? Like like gambling, like a slot machine. Mm-hmm. Heck, it's just hard to have that enthusiasm the second time. It was so perfect and so raw the first time. But it's all right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get over it. I'll stop talking about it now. So uh, it was pinball. Uh, 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 who's not played pinball? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Everyone's played pinball. Ow! So really, a slot machine. God, that hurt. You're breaking more teeth. Mm. Unfortunately, I wish it didn't fall out, but anyway. Anyways, uh, we also talked about computers that were made to play chess and checkers against humans, and the idea was to create, to basically learn about computers and advance them by using them to kind of create their own artificial intelligence. But the first sort of real video game thing was something called the cathode ray tube uh, amusement device. It came out in 1947. 
It was invented by Thomas T. Goldsmith uh, Jr. and Junior. Estelle Ray Mann. It's man with two ends, like my call. Oh, man. Uh, it was the first use of electronical electronic display and interactive electronic games. What happened was what what this cathode tube ray tube was basically this advanced looking light bulb, and at the end of the light bulb, like a tube television, you'd have the display, and the display worked, from what I could tell, like a like a laser show, like a laser Floyd, gotcha. where the yeah. The laser would move just right. I'm not sure exactly how it works. Uh, I probably should have looked into that. But they created this battleship type game with it. Uh, what was it called again? The cathode ray tube amusement device. Alright, continue. I've seen it. Um, I'm just not sure how it works exactly. So with it, they would create uh, a battleship type game where they would put in the information of like, is your battle, is your ship over here? No. Okay. Then you get a little display of the bomb missing, and then oh, is it over here? You got it. So you get this little display of uh, an explosion. No sound though. It was just this. Uh, Sorry, I'm looking it up. This fake little uh, display. Fake. I even got the diagram. We could build one. We're not going to, but we no could. My sound should be all the way down. I wanted to see what it looked like quick. It's a good idea. But I'll go on. That's tennis for two. We're going to talk about that in a second. Oh, well, this is the device they were... I know. That popped up. Um, in the early 50s, we got the first true video game. Which uh, I'm looking at right now. University computers used uh, something called Bernie the Brain and Nimrod. As an academic programs became popular uh, for computers, and a series of computer games were made to simulate board games. The purpose was to uh, learn more about to advance programming, uh, human computer interaction, and computer come up with computer algorithms. Um, <laughs> One thing I don't get about it. You're, you're looking at Tennis for Two? I which, am. Which is what we're talking about right now. With a William Higgin, uh, man named William Higginbotham. <laughs> he was uh, one of the scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, and he built, he built the timing switches for the bomb to detonate at the exact right time. Obviously, he regretted that later in life, as most men who worked on the Manhattan Project did. All right. Uh, after the war, he worked in the instrument division of Brookhaven National Laboratories. Every year, Brookhaven would have an open house of sorts, but most of the time, most of the items on display were very boring and inanimate, inanimate computerization devices. Computation devices. Computation? Computation. In 1958, Higginbotham uh, wanted to have something a lot more interactive, so... He called it Tennis for Two, which is what you're looking at. It displays on an oscilloscope, which basically is a heart monitor or like radar. Um, it's not like it's not a television, really. right? It just shows this little display, and using controllers that he created himself, knobs and buttons. You can control where you'd hit this ball. It looks like the side view. Of oh, see, a that was my court. question. It looked like a like a, a sound wave monitor. Yeah. Thing, but my thing is like, okay, so you have your knob and the button. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't see anything like moving up yeah. and down, but it, they were hitting it each time. Yeah, they. I don't. Maybe it was. It just knew to be the right spot or something like that. I I don't know. But you can affect the trajectory of where the ball goes by using the controllers. Um. When they built it, guests loved it. Precursors. Yeah. I guess that's what it's considered. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the high schoolers liked it best. You couldn't pull them away from it. That's a Higginbotham quote. In 1959, it returned for the next tour, but was dismantled soon after and incorporated into other projects. No one at Brookhaven saw much reason to keep it around. They thought of computer games as a waste of time. So, these people that came before... They did all these things, but there really wasn't anything that stuck. Everything, except for maybe the coming, like developing the computers using chess and other board games. But it wasn't until you had a man named Steve Russell, where Steve and his colleagues enjoyed making elaborate train models and their terrains, and they loved trashy sci-fi novels. So they also worked with early computers. At and that's what they look like. <laughs> One colleague, uh, Robert Wagner, not the guy who may or may not have killed Natalie Wood. It's not as funny the second time. Um, <laughs> he uh, wrote a program called Expensive Desk Calculator, but their professor was a typical stick-in-the-mud type guy who was like, there's no point in making computer games. What's wrong with you guys? And he gave him a zero as punishment, but it didn't deter Mr... Uh, Wagner. He uh, he and his group continued to make playful pro continue with their playful programming. In 1961, MIT received a PDP one, which cost at the time uh, 120 thousand dollars, which today runs about a million after inflation. That blows my mind. It was a microcomputer, which we were talking about uh, before that. Computers back then were giant in the size of a room. Now this one is only the size of a large car. So that, that's small. I mean, well, considering those computers were the size of a room. Yeah. Sorry, so, I got cut, like stuck reading part of what I was looking at. He's cheating on me with other facts. Actually, no. More or less, I'm kind of where you are in the whole. <laughs> you know what I mean. I want the information Tennis from you. for two, blah, blah, blah. Oh, the blah, information blah, blah. from this other thing. The TXO. <laughs> uh, one of the important additions to this computer was the monitor and keyboard, which was new before things would print out on tape. Really bizarre. So it was a predecessor to the modern personal computer, a thing that I accidentally unplugged and ruined your podcast. Uh, so then Steve, Marty Greats, I'm going to call him Greats, and Wayne... Whitnam, Whitnam, Whitnam. He, uh, they, the three of them decided to use the new machines to make a game where you can control a spaceship. They called it Space War, and Russell programmed it. Steve Russell sounds like a, uh, a known athlete. Steve Russell. Russell. He added uh, a gravitational force in the center to make it. So you can swing your ship around, and uh, added a starry background so you can see how fast your your characters are going or your your spaceships are going. This is a, a two player game, 
So you fought against each other, like a war. I know what game it is now you're talking about. Yeah. And uh, they wanted to sell it, but because it required the expensive computer, they decided to just give it away to anybody who had happened to have the computer. It became popular in other schools, and the program used to demonstrate the uh, PDP's, PDP-1's capability. So it became a, a demo right. for, for the computer. Like when uh, you get... Actually, you know what the purpose of Solitaire was? What's what, that? Because I love Solitaire. It's one of my favorite games to play. To teach you how to use a mouse. Really? Yeah. Huh. So if you get, like I had, Windows 3.1, and you're brand new to the idea of a mouse. I wasn't, because had, we had computers at school, at the, even at that time. Um, even at that time. I was, this was the early 90s. Uh, you're so old. I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, that was the purpose for people who, like my mother, who didn't grow up with... That sort of thing, so you can learn to click and drag and double click and right click and all that fun stuff. So, huh? I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And look at it now; it's one of like the biggest games. You, it it's, comes with every computer, I think. Yeah, and it's definitely a uh, must-play for people over the age of fifty. <laughs> hey, what are you trying to say? I'm not fifty. I love playing solitaire. I, I hate do people. too. <laughs> to, to go on a little side note because we're talking about card games I bought a Texas Hold'em game for my Xbox One cost me like less than two bucks and I sat here for hours just playing Texas Hold'em one morning I'm just like I gotta get out of bed <laughs> oh crap I won cool now I'm stuck here like I was trying to lose and I'd keep winning that's because you're trying to lose it's a deep dark pit that you fall into I'm telling you now imagine so, if you're gambling real money I'd lose I've, I've played Texas Hold'em in casinos before I've lost. I have stories about that too, but we won't get into that. Um, so by the spring of 1962, the game was ready to play. Word of Space War spread, and it became trendy among PDP. PDP. See, PDP is an actual programming language, or it's a type of thing that you do for, like, creating forms. So that way, if somebody puts information into a form on the computer and hits send, that information goes to the right place. That would be considered a, um, a programming language, then. Yeah. Uh, I had to learn that once. I actually have a book around here, probably on my shelf, of uh, PDP language. But uh, I don't know what PDP stands for, either. Some thorough investigation I did. Um, yeah, it spread around a lot, like when we were growing up with Mario Kart and GoldenEye and other things like that. Which are awesome. Yes, sir. Halo. No, that was not so awesome. You must have uh, grown out of video games at that point because... Uh, no, I like the first Halo. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, the first one was cool. So they wanted to sell it, but because it required an expensive computer to run it, I already talked about this, they gave it away. Uh, it became popular in other schools, and the program used to demonstrate the PDP-1's capabilities. It even became the first packing game when it was available, well, always included with every PDP-1 so, we have some foundation here, but the real founding fathers are two men. Sorry, Program Data Processor 1. That makes sense. Uh, we're going to talk about two founding fathers here. All right. And these are... None of them are Yakamoto or no, Takanishi? No, 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 no uh, Japanese men yet. Okay. But they're coming. In future episodes. No, future is coming. So, we're talking about the founding fathers. First, we're talking about Ralph Baer. That is B-A-E-R. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born in 1922 and raised in Germany. Uh, Ralph grew up 
watching the Nazi party rise in his homeland, and Ralph was Jewish. So it didn't uh, bode well for him, so his family flew, uh, fled in 1938 to the United States. So he was born in 22? 22. They fled in 38, so he was 16. Wow. They fled uh, the country because, uh, for obvious reasons. And... Uh, well, he was born after the first war. Well, he's born after yeah. the second war. He's born a couple years after World War One, where the Germans lost, and it and then he saw messed the their economy. Germany Got, rise again. Yep, they were downtrodden, uh, and no um, self-esteem. So then a man came along and said, "It's not your fault that this happened. It's." The Jews' fault, and everybody's like, "Yeah, that's that's exactly. We believe you. We'll follow you anywhere, even if it means." Hey, that man had to have some good speaking. That that's <laughs> that's how Hitler rose to power. And then you get a guy coming up recently saying, "It's not your fault that America sucks. It's the Mexicans' fault. It's the Muslims' fault." And Blame anyone but the government. And people said, <laughs> "Yeah, buddy." And now we have. President Trump. Um, I did just compare him to Hitler. In the States, he studied television and radio technology. He got a job working at for Laurel Electronics. Laurel was a military contractor. And in 1951, Bear and his colleagues were asked to build a television from scratch. This is a quote from Ralph himself. We used test equipment to check out our progress. And one of the pieces of equipment we used put horizontal lines, vertical lines, cross hatch patterns and color lines on the screen you can move them around to some extent and use them to adjust the television set moving these patterns around was kind of neat and the idea came to me that maybe we wanted to build something into a television set I don't know that I thought about it as a game more something to fool with and to give you something to do with a television set other than watch stupid network programs. Trump's sister. <laughs> In uh, August of 1966, <laughs> August 1966, Bear was the head of instrument design at New Hampshire-based military contractor. No acronym, got you. Okay. Sanders Associates. <laughs> on his way home from a business trip he was waiting for his ride when he had a wild thought that would dramatically change the course of history and everyone born after that moment and in quotes I put hey let's play games that's what he. Are we that's waking what he said. up to a saw guy or want to play a game? Would you like to play a game? No. The wizard needs food badly. The next day, he wrote out his uh, proposal, the idea of a 1995, the price 1995, game playing device that would plug into a television set. Uh, we talked about this the first time we recorded. Do you know... Now you know why. But the price was nineteen ninety five, and we'll find that a lot where it ends in 95 instead of 99 or 0. Do you know why it doesn't end in 0? Yes, you do now. I do now, yes. Uh, it was for cashiers who 
Safe to still in money apparently. To to make it more difficult for them to just put the money into their pocket because if it costs nineteen eighty five and you hand them a twenty dollar bill, you have to give them a nickel change. So you have to open your cash register. So you put the twenty well, in. See, I would assume that's where receipts came from then. It could like, be like the automatic receipt. You know what I mean? Right. Because I'm sure everything was done writing. Well, here's your receipt. Yeah. Let's see what that. You got books. Like now they can hit no cell and it opens. Yeah. You know, but they, I guess they didn't have that back then. Maybe. I don't know. We never know so. I haven't done the research on that yet. I'm sure eventually we'll get there. I'm sure we'll do shot, uh, grocery stores at some point. Beauty school dropout. He had uh, trouble moving. <laughs> <laughs> it's grocery stores. He had trouble moving beyond the drawing board because his employer was military. Uh, so he used wording that could be mistaken for something official for the name Channel LP. The XD1. I don't know what the... Oh, the LP stood for Let's Play. He uh, worked in a locker room. Yeah, he worked in a locker room in secret on Channel LP with two other men, Bill Harrison and Bill Rush. By March 1967, the... Three developed a few game ideas. There was Chase, where uh, it's two players. Player one was a dot. Right. Player two was a dot. And player one would chase player two. Gotcha. Using knobs and such. Uh, there was a shooting game with a gun control, so they actually created a light gun. And uh, targets on the screen for shooting. And it looked like... Skeets. Eventually, I don't know what it looked like at this point in the stage, yeah. but uh, it, it looked like shooting stars. Right. And they were teeny tiny going across the screen to try to shoot. And then the third game they created was a ping pong type game where two players each controlled a bat. And Mario knocked, Tennis. Knock, well, just... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> knocking a dot back and forth. Oh, you ruined it, Joe. Man, that was like four episodes away. <laughs> Once the working prototype was finished, Bear took it to his boss, Herbert Chapman. He wasn't sure what to make of it, but he gave him $2,000, which wasn't a lot, and uh, five months to develop it. But no, Which something. isn't a lot now. Yeah. Definitely not. Uh, as development continued, Chapman became a fan, especially of the shooting game, the psychopath. That's because he likes shooting people. Well, yeah, he's military, I think. I don't know. The executive vice president wasn't as invested until years later when license money started coming in. License money. Like, they sold the idea and money started pouring in to Sanders, and the guy's like, maybe this isn't such a bad idea after all. Well, here we are, playing ping pong when we ought to be working. Here's our ball, volleying back and forth. One free ball, plus one at courtesy of a local CATV station. Here's my partner, Bill, and I, we're going to play ping pong for you in a minute, but before we do, I'd like to show you the controls that we're using which are part of the plug-in module, the, uh, the uh, ping-pong plug-in module, gaming plug-in module of the all-purpose box we talked about earlier. Uh, there is a horizontal knob here, as you can see, which, when I twiddle it, moves my paddle from left to right. There is a vertical control, which moves my paddle up and down. Finally, there's an English knob, which allows me to put curves on the ball, control the vertical position of the ball as it leaves my paddle. Whenever I intercept the ball, if I don't miss it, 
and bat it back at my opponent. I have control over the ball's vertical position, and that's what the English now is for. And watch me fake him out in a minute. There's another control here, a serve knob, which puts the ball into play, serves it from my side if it's out of play. In my, on my position, uh, if it should go out of play, in Bill's position, he's got the same kind of a button right here. He pushes it, and the ball comes in from that side. Ready? It's on your side. It's on my side? <clears throat> okay, let's go. Let me move away from the net a bit. Here we go. Because of its brown color and simple design, the hardware was named the Brown Box. Bear had to present the Brown Box to the company's executive board. Most were stone-faced during the presentation and thought he was crazy. He probably was. But two board members thought it was great and became very excited by the box. The box. Sanders was uh, unable to distribute the brown box because they were a military contractor. So Bear hoped uh, a company, Teleprompter Corporation, would be able to help. After talks of distribution, plans fell through when Teleprompter started having money problems in April of 1968. The brown box was shelved for now. Until that September 1968, and uh, they finished the brown box by January of 1969. <laughs> Sanders' patent uh, attorney suggested Bear try selling this device to TV manufacturers. So he went to General Electric. General Electric. Electric. General Electric. General Electric's GE. That's easier. Magnavox, Motorola, Philco. RCA, that's my tablet. Yeah, yeah. And Sylv Sylvania. Sylvania. Sylvania's been around that long? Yes, sir. Holy Toledo, I didn't at know. At least the late 60s. Everyone said it was a great it was great, but no one put their money where their mouth was. Uh, Except RCA. Way to go, tablet. Unfortunately. Go dictation machine. Unfortunately, an agreement agreement could not be reached. Fortunately, the RCA executive Bill Enders left RCA and joined Magnavox. Enders convinced Magnavox to take a look at Bart at Bart's. I think I meant Bear's brown box. Bear, yes. There's no well. There's two Bills, no Bart. Yeah. <laughs> they demonstrated the device in July of 1969. Most executives were lukewarm to the idea, but the president of marketing, Jerry Martin. Spell with a G, Jerry. Jerry! Liked the idea enough to push it into production. In January 1971, Magnavox and Sanders signed an agreement. He looked at the fact that everybody had a television in their home, and a television would only do one thing, would play material that was broadcast. But could you do something else with TV? Maybe we could play a game. He was literally thinking outside the box. And what we've built, we call the all-purpose box. Bear started working on ways to interact with TVs with funding from his employer. Well, here we are, playing ping pong when we ought to be working. And between 1966 and 68, he built the prototypes that would become the basis for all home video game systems that followed. He developed what he called the brown box. And we love it, the fact that he took contact paper and put it all around this to make it look like a device. But the brown box is a real important historical artifact. Here, there's the two consoles. It looks like a glorified cigar box, but this prototype laid the foundation for a video game industry that now tops $25 billion in worldwide sales each year. Magnavox redesigned it and was thinking to call it the Skillovision. Skillovision? They decided instead to call it the Odyssey. Yes, that's a way better name. Yes. 
The introductory price was nineteen ninety five, which I don't know why I don't have the inflation numbers for that. Two thousand dollars that would add up to about a hundred and fifty two. Where'd you get two thousand? Is that what you said earlier? You gave him two thousand. Well, yeah, I gave him two thousand. I'm talking about the ninety nine ninety five that it costs to uh, buy this oh. Magnavox Odyssey. Four hundred about four hundred dollars. Let's see. I actually should be looking up 1972 because that's when it was finally released. So we're going to calculate it. I'm sure I've actually already done this when it released. That's uh, $584.68. About, about $400. That sounds about right for consoles nowadays. Yeah. And this upset Bear because his idea was, no, $20. Make it cheap. Um, and people will buy it. But he saw the box, and this is his quote. I saw the box... And out comes 10,000 playing cards, paper money, and all this crap. I just knew nobody ever is ever going to use this stuff. Monopoly? No, well... Oh, you'll understand why all that crap was in there, but... Uh, a launch date was set for August of 1972, but it was first demonstrated in several public locations to raise awareness to build hype. On May 24th... Hype. 1972, which was 45 years ago, a few days ago. Yes. In the Burling, Burlingham, California airport near San Francisco, a man, anyway. <laughs> a man who was in the video game business played the Odyssey and the ping pong game and stored the idea away in his mind. That man was named Nolan Bushnell, which brings us to founding father number two. Bushnell, him Nolan, I know, for the most part. Nolan Bushnell went to the University of Utah in the mid-60s. Johnny Utah. Uh, yes, I, I know it sounds like a stereotype, but yes, he was Mormon. Or, sorry, LDS. Uh, oh, I was talking about uh, Point Break. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I'm Johnny, just saying. Johnny Utah. I, I well, Utah. assume most people that I've met that go to... Utah. Utah schools, whether it be Brigham, you know, whatever, but are Mormon. So that's not a surprise to me at all. Yeah. It's not really. Whew. I heard it's a really good school, though. So yeah. Good for them. Uh, especially with uh, computers, because we talked about University of uh, Utah before with uh, Ed Catmull. I believe he was the one who went to University of Utah. And uh, he was there for... Uh, the development, the invention of computer graphics. Ah, okay. Uh, and then he eventually went on to become... So the gooey guy, huh? Huh? Which, fun little note that I just found out, that Ed Catmull, the, one of the founders of Pixar, uh, see episode, like, four or something, the John Lasseter episode, and uh, he knew my girlfriend's mother. Oh, wow. So they knew each other, and now he's a multi-millionaire. <laughs> Probably billions at this point, because he's the head of Disney Animation too. Oh yeah, he's got somebody. Yes, he does. Uh, so, <laughs> speaking of Disney, uh, Nolan Bushnell wanted to be an Imagineer at Disney. That he, doesn't shock me. He went to school for electrical engineering and uh, gambled his tuition money away and lost. Obviously, sounds about right. Well, that's what gambling away means. Uh, he got a job at the. <laughs> But this is like, you don't even realize that, but this is like a moment of fate right here because if he didn't that do that, <coughs> excuse me, if he didn't do that, then he wouldn't have gotten a job at Lagoon Amusement Park, which we'll get into why that's important. Uh, which, that's in Farmington, Utah. 
about 25 to 30 minutes north of Salt Lake City. When he went to University of Utah, they had a PDP-1, so of course it, it had, of course it had, it, uh... Pong! No. Table tennis for one, two. Space war. Asteroids. So this is his, uh, quote... When I first saw Space War on the PDP-1, I was working summers at Lagoon, so I was immediately aware of arcade economics. It occurred to me that if I could put that game on a computer screen and into an arcade, it would make a lot of money. But with the million dollar computers of the time, it wouldn't work. So, same idea that uh, Steve Russell had of like trying to sell this somehow, but because the computers were so expensive there wasn't a way for them to distribute it or make it cheap with his ambition uh, uh, to design his knowledge of coin op games and his entrepreneurial 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 sure spirit uh bushnell practically invented the video arcade so uh, after college, Nolan got a job at Ampex, a pioneer in mechanic or ma- magnetic recording. Good grief! <laughs> How's the hard ones today? What? How's the hard ones today? The and and. Uh-huh. They produced the first commercial reel-to-reel recorder. Oh, nice! Bushnell met a man named Ted Dabney, and Dabney brought a fresh perspective to the coin-out space war idea. Bushnell was trying to find a computer cheap enough to run the program, but Dabney brought the idea of building dedicated hardware with their vision or their version of the game built in. Bit by bit, they built the dedicated circuits to perform each function. This made the machine cheaper, while more powerful than running it on another product. Fair enough. They, their game had to adapt. It's just a they game. Their game had to adapt to the limited specs of the new hardware, so it was no longer two-player. It was now a single-player, t- uh, taking on two computer-controlled UFOs. So it's 1v2 and uh, one computer, one player versus two computer-controlled AI things. So Space Invaders? No. Space Invaders were several ships. That's true. Let's see. It was also no longer called Space Wars. At the game... As the game neared completion, Bushnell's dentist recommend he contact another patient who was a sales guy at Nutting Associates. Nutting created a machine called Computer Quiz a hit coin-op multiple-choice quiz game for bars. At the time, Nutting, Nutting, N-U-T-T-I-N-G, was in need of a hit, so they welcomed Bushnell and Dabney in with open arms. Bushnell let Ampex, left Ampex for Nutting in August of 1971. He worked to complete the game and named it Computer Space because of the computer quiz game. Alright. So kind of a unofficial sequel or next step forward I guess around this time Bushnell heard of Bill Pitt and Hugh Tuck they were working on Galaxy Games this too was a coin-op version of Space War 
However, their machine used a PDP-11 to run the game. The machine still cost $20,000, which is about $120,000 today. So, it's not a feasible amount of money for mass production. No. So, uh, Nolan invited them into their workspace. He was curious about their version of the game. He hoped that they knew of some cost-cutting tools, but obviously they didn't, since they're using the more expensive expensive computer. Nolan was disappointed and relieved at the same time. He felt they were they weren't competition for him. Right. Pitt and Tuck left, feeling their game was better because of how true it was to the original. So in September 1971, Galaxy Game was released. It was the officially it was officially the first coin-operated video game. 1971. So we're talking about really 47, 1947, with the the tube thing. I can't remember the name of. Oh crap! Uh, Up to 1971, where they actually officially came out with it. Uh, Kaleidoscope tube. It was. I don't remember. It's not important. It became very popular on the spectacle alone. Everybody wanted to play this new machine. However, the cost of the machine made turning a profit difficult. This part's fun. Uh, Pitt and Tuck persevered. They worked on version 2. Costs ran too high, and the two had to give up. So here are some stats right? to uh, to think about. Why? Because you're like going, oh, well, you know, maybe eventually they can turn a profit. So $20,000 means... That eighty thousand people have to play each machine, each machine, and with without maintenance needing before it can break even. How many times? Eight eighty thousand because it's quarter. Holy cow! So eighty thousand people have to play this machine. If each person plays an average of three minutes, that's two hundred and forty thousand minutes or four thousand hours. Assuming that the location, it's at is open for 10 hours a day that's constantly and it's constantly sorry yeah constantly without breaking being played that's 400 days so over a year straight if all the stars align before profit can be made and obviously they'll have holidays bars this is in a bar right no i don't know where is that I don't even think I put it down. Anyways, no way that it's going to get played consistently No. for that long. So no way to really turn a profit. And not to mention the fact that maintenance costs added on top of it. And it's per machine. Yeah. So November 1971, Computer Space was released. While Galaxy Game was aimed at the same audience as Space War... Uh, and was installed on a campus at Stanford. There we go. It was installed on, on ah. campus at Stanford. Computer, computer space was placed <laughs> in a bar near Stanford. Bushnell's purpose was to make money. It was a product. It succeeded when Galaxy Game had failed. 1,500 more were made and distributed to arcades and other bars. It wasn't the hit everybody was hoping for, uh, the initial bar was populated mostly by college students. Um, so Bushnell knew not to just give it back to the same people who could play the original. Yeah. He gave it to the people who 
they're out having fun. But it was still close to Stanford, so it was still college students drinking and college students playing computer space. So we're, we're dealing with younger people who are easier to adapt to things. Right. And smarter than the average student, or teen, or well, not teen, obviously, because they're drinking, but young adult. So the general public wasn't as receptive of computer space. In a blue-collar environment, the gameplay was confusing. Also, the controllers weren't intuitive. Uh, lessons in video game creation... This is like the first... One of the first lessons to have intuitive controls. Because this had... This wasn't a joystick and a button for thrust. Although, I think Asteroids itself is a little complicated with the controls. I've always had issues with it. But it became a huge hit. Um... With computer space, you had several buttons in front of you, and each button did something. Like, you push right. this button, and it's going to turn your left. And you push this button, it's going to turn your right. You push this button, it's going to thrust. This button's going to break. Right. Uh, so you had to try to figure that out, and this is the first video game that a lot of people are seeing, so it's not going to... It's not as easy. Um, in a phone conversation with the distributor who let Bushnell know of computer space's shortcomings... Nolan declared that this was only the beginning and video games will replace pinball as the dominant coin-op amusement. <laughs> One of the directors, Gil Kitts, responded with, There is no future in video games, and if the day comes that computer or sorry, that video games take over, I will eat my hat. Oh, I hope you enjoyed this hat. <laughs> they uh, talked to him later and he's like, Yeah, I didn't eat it, but Oh, <laughs> uh, see I can't trust him then. Yeah, I know. Computer Space wasn't a smash hit, but brought in enough revenue for Bushnell and Dabney to branch out on their own and form Syzygy Engineering. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, which is a straight line configuration of three celestial bodies, an example of like a solar eclipse. So if the moon moves right in front of, aligns with the sun and the earth, right. creates a shadow, that's called Syzygy. I did not know that either. I didn't until I did this research, even though I think I knew at one point, but I forgot. It happens. It happens to me a lot. <laughs> Ralph Bear is really an engineer type. He's the kind of guy who'd happily sit in a dark room by himself for hours working on projects. In the meantime, you got Nolan Bushnell, who's kind of this freewheeling hippie type. He's the kind of guy that you'd find smoking a cigar in a hot tub with women all around him. Yeah, Ralph Baer and Nolan Bushnell are like a buddy cop movie. You know, one's a free-thinking hippie and the other's like a straight-laced guy who doesn't want a new partner. And uh, Nolan Bushnell is that new partner. Uh, so now we go back to that airport near San Francisco and Bushnell witnessing the upcoming Magnavox Odyssey. Also at this time, Scissor G is making a driving game for Bally Midway. Bushnell is convinced that this driving game is going to blow everyone away, so all of his focus goes into making this driving game. So the Odyssey is shelved in his memory because he felt it was a poorly executed idea. And if you've actually ever seen the Magnavox Odyssey at play, it's pretty rough. Right. And we'll, we'll get into we'll get into all of it. Uh, Dabney and Bushnell try to incorporate scissor, uh, Scissorgy But they find Scissor what? Scissorgy Scissorgy Synergy? Scissorgy well, There's no R in there even though I'm pronouncing it R Scissorgy But they find out that somebody already has that name Really? Yeah so in the early 70s they're like 
we're going to incorporate, we're going to become Syzygy Engineering Incorporated, and they find out that the name's taken. So they're not the only nerds around. So they needed a new name. In the office, Bushnell and company would play a Japanese game called Go. The game, if, um, if you've seen it, it looks like checkers. It, you've, you've probably seen it. It's this board with a bunch of black and white stones, and you have to oh, move. You play, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's it's it's about. definitely it's a very complicated looking. Uh, reverse. And they have, it's it's Japanese. They have a Japanese word that basically means check, like in chess, where you're, you're right. about to attack. In your next move, you can attack the king, so you say check. They have a word in Japanese, and that word is Atari. Okay. So, obviously, they used the, the word Atari, Atari and became yeah, Atari. Atari. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. <laughs> Atari At first, when you started the whole synergy thing, Scissorgy. as your synergy, I was like, no, this isn't about Sega. <laughs> that doesn't they, make any sense. Their name actually comes from something interesting, but we'll wait on that. We'll wait until we get to Sega. Episode 4. Atari first. Atari first. Atari first. We will be talking about the five families of video games. The first two episodes That's are going to be most... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the first two episodes are going to be about Atari, mostly. The third episode is going to be about Nintendo, mostly. The fourth episode is going to introduce Sega. Um, then I would assume the next one will include Sony, and then eventually we'll get to Microsoft. So those are like I call them the five families of video games. Uh, in June of uh, June twenty seventh, nineteen seventy two. Atari Incorporated was founded. That same day, they hired a trainee from Ampex by the name of Al Alcorn. Al was given a simple assignment to introduce him into video game design. Bushnell asked him to replicate the ping pong game Nolan uh, saw at the airport. He also lied about where he got the inspiration for the game. So he's like, ah, oh, you know, I have this idea. Ping pong game. You have one guy on one side, one guy on the other, just batting this thing around. It's this isn't something we're planning on actually releasing. <laughs> right. So just go have fun, use it to learn how to make games, and come back to us. So this is a training exercise. This is audition for for Atari. So Al Alcorn took the project very seriously. He made it so that the ball hit hit the paddle, it would change the direction and or speed of the ball depending on where the ball hit the paddle. He also added a scoreboard, which was the uh, the biggest innovation, or sorry, he added a scoreboard and the biggest innovation, sound. Because up until this point, everything else was just dead quiet. Right. Boop. So he added sound. Boop. These changes added a subtle yet a substantial amount of fun to the gameplay that the Odyssey was missing. The sound drew people towards the machine. The new ball reaction to the paddles added a, an extra layer of needed skill, and the scoreboard made it a competition. Uh, so it's, it's a lot like, you know, you play air hockey, and... Depending on how you hit it, where you hit it, that's how you can score. Yeah. yeah. So before it was just you'd hit the ball back and forth or the square back and forth on the Odyssey, and it was you're basically going back and forth. Ding, 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 ding. Oops, I missed. Okay, I lost. 
let me just write down a little tick mark on a piece of paper in front of me. <laughs> Dabney and Bushnell saw the potential that Alcorn's ping pong game had. Naming it was easy. It couldn't be called ping pong. And they didn't want to call it ping. I forget the official reason why they couldn't call it ping, but I'm sure. That's racist. Yeah. That'd be my guess. So, <laughs> what did they call it? Pong. Pong. The game was demonstrated at Andy Capps Tavern in Sunnyvale, California in September of 1972. Sunnyvale, really? Sunnyvale. I don't know what that is. I Sunnyvale is up north. Well, yeah, most of the north. stuff, I think. Is. Near the Silicon Valley. Well, it was near the Silicon Valley. It was close in the area. Well, that's where they're at. It, it sounds like, anyway. Um, Bushnell tried to use Pong to fulfill his contract with Valley Midway. They refused it because it was two-player only, while most coin-op games were single-player. I assume this Atari showed up because of the microchip. What do you mean? Because the whole reason for the computer being so big was because they didn't have micro. Didn't. Well, we actually the next episode we will talk about microprocessors. That's what I meant, not micro. Which, microprocessors. which I'll spoil this part now. It's the reason why the second generation of video games became possible. But we'll go into more detail about that in the next episode. Um, also, Tori was told by the tavern that the machine stopped working. So they had this big maintenance issue because the game's not working. So when they went out to maintenance the machine, they realized it was completely full of quarters. And so it completely it filled oh, up wow. so much that it was overflowing, and the game just like stopped working. So the game had become so popular that, uh, yeah, the, they couldn't fit any more quarters in, so they knew that they had to come by more often to empty it. To empty it. Uh, Pong was a huge hit at Handicaps. Large queues formed. Pong made $200 a week, while the average coin-up made $50 a week. Bushnell went to Bally Midway and Nutting, uh, hoping to find a manufacturer both of them were like, nah. So they decided to manufacture the machines themselves. With their low resources, this was Atari going all in on Pong. They had enough money to make 11 machines, so they made 11 machines. Only 11 machines? Only 11 machines. <laughs> Each cost $280 to build. And all 11 were sold immediately for $900. Oh, what? You could have bought a car for that. Well, this... Much rather have a car than a game system. This was, uh... Well... I if, own a car. If you, if you own a... Uh, um, bar, then you're going to want to... You want to have a pawn machine in your bar because it's going to bring people to your bar, so it's going to earn you more money. And they did make a percentage of it, so... Of the, of the game's profit. Oh, see, then that means... Video games were created for adults, not children. The beginning of it was just pretty much made for anybody. But it was only in bars, mostly. An arcade. Well, that's where it started. Arcade, but because that, that that's the test market, basically. All the drugs? Well, yeah. You know how much f fun games are when you've been... Yes, uh, I, I know 100%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have put many, many, many a dollar... Into those stupid machines. Yes, sir. Uh, so the profits they made from that was six thousand eight hundred twenty dollars, 
which is about forty thousand dollars today. Just off of one game? Just off of well, the, the eleven they sold. Okay, the eleven they sold. Okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, they upped the next wave of units to fifty. The office adjacent to theirs just opened up after the previous tenant went out of business, so they just put a hole in the wall and uh, <laughs> double the size of their <laughs> office. <laughs> Not legally, of course. Well, yeah, I, I seriously doubt zoning back then meant anything. Uh, Pong spread like wildfire thanks to word of mouth. Distributors were begging Atari for more machines. Unfortunately, Atari didn't have an assembly line factory yet to meet the high demand. Bushnell went to the banks to get a loan, but ran into some trouble thanks to his hippie appearance. <laughs> Eventually, Wells Fargo provided $50,000 enough for a production line. Crazy hippies. They bought a roller rink to use as a factory, and oh. a hiring service provided them with anyone needing a job. Most were junkies who were horrible and often would still steal the TVs. <laughs> Not surprising, they're junkies. Yeah, but you... Gotta get my fix, baby. You're just trying to help out America. You're trying to start one of the uh, fastest growing industries in the world. Well, it's going to be. But it's just hilarious because you get this service that's supposed to hire people for you. And they're like, here you go. And they throw you some junkies and they're stealing TVs. And like, <laughs> Thanks. No, Apple One sucks, what can I tell you? Apple One, there wasn't much to it. That's something we'll eventually no. talk about. Apple One is a, a, a hiring agency. Uh, <laughs> Apple I, One was a computer, too. No, well, I know it was, but I was talking about the employment agency. That's yeah. kind of funny. I didn't think about it when I said it. But so, anyway. <laughs> Pong clo clones started appearing. Uh, we have Chicago Coin, who was making one. Williams. Bally Midway licensed their clone through Atari. Netting Associates released Computer Space Ball. Uh, Allied Leisure had Paddle Battle. Paddle and, Battle. And Tennis Tourney. Oh, wow. And then Pong spread across the world to Japan, well, France, and Italy. All Pong, they had was Pachinga out there. Pachinga is a Pachinga? Pachinko. Pachinko. Pong was so popular that it helped the sales of the Magnavosk... Vox Odyssey, which was released in September of 1971. And we'll talk all about the Odyssey, but first... Some people are like, oh, well, that's the same, right? <laughs> well, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. But first, remember our pop quiz question from last time? No. Uh, you not knew, offhand. You knew the answer back then. Uh, you didn't tell me what the answer was, so I can't confirm, even though it should be obvious for you at least. During World War One, Ray Kroc, remember him? Yeah. Uh, age 15, lied about his age to get into the American Red Cross. He never saw combat because the war ended before he was sent to Europe, but while stationed in Connecticut, he met another young man who also lied about his age. Walt Disney. Hold on. But yes, that's the answer. <laughs> this fellow liar would go on to make a name for himself to rival that of McDonald's famous familiarity. Who was that young man? Walt Disney. Walt Disney. He joined the French Foreign Legion, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've, I've, I think it was the French Foreign Legion. When we get to Walt Disney... Or maybe it was a Red Cross and then he went to the French Foreign Legion. No, he didn't go that far. Um, there are so many crazy rumors. 
about Walt Disney and the things he's done. Years later, when we're still on the subject, years later when Walt was working on building Disneyland, Ray Kroc tried to get a McDonald's in the park. This was 1954 when the park was uh, being built and around the time Ray first became the franchiser. Franchiser? <laughs> Walt passed the idea to somebody else in the office given his large stack of work to get through before the park opened. He... His idea never went anywhere. Ray blamed Disney, saying that they wanted to raise the prices of all the menu items so Disney could earn more profit off of it. This was unlikely untrue. Mm. In 1955, this is untrue. Likely. Because Ray Kroc's a liar! Go check out our last three episodes. Yeah. McDonald's did eventually make it to Disney Parks in 1998 at Disney's Animal Kingdom. At the end of that same year, the Conestoga wagon that served fries and Coke was installed at Disneyland Park. Westward Ho! In 2001, the Harbor Galley and Burger Invasion opened at Disneyland Park and Disney California Adventure Park, respectively, serving a McDonald's menu. In 2007, the contract was up and all McDonald's-related imagery and food were eventually get on removed, especially when you go right across the street and you get overpriced McDonald's. And whatever. It was funny about that. Then go down Catella and get underpriced McDonald's. Yeah, there you go. Because I remember when they had the buy one get one free Big Macs at all McDonald's. That McDonald's did not have buy one get one free. Yes. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that McDonald's is owned. I I by Disney. I hear that it is, which is funny because. They used to have a sign on a post like most McDonald's, and Disney put a tree in Tomorrowland so you can't see it, and so they made the post higher, and so Disney made a taller tree, <laughs> and so McDonald's raised their so eventually like this ridiculous post with the McDonald's golden arches on top of it so you could see it inside McDonald's and Disney's like knock it off. That's probably when they bought it. Right. <laughs> That's funny. What did this say? What did it say? Angels beat the Mariners 5-2. to two. Woo! On Seattle. So, they're a decent team. I don't know about this year in general, but... Anyways. So now we're here. That was the foundation. Now we're here at the story at hand. Now we know how video games came into being. We got the first hit with Pong. We got the first video game console with the Magnavox Odyssey. So we're going to start with Generation 1 of video games. Currently, if you're wondering, we are in Generation H. 8. H. Generation 8 with the Xbox One, the Wii U, and the PlayStation 4. The Nintendo Switch. That looks cool. Oh, yes. I, I would like one. But the Nintendo Switch, I looked it up. It doesn't say it's part of the 8th generation. And it has happened where... One company will create multiple consoles within a generation. Atari did it. Um, so I don't know if the Switch is Generation 9. I want to say yes and no. Only for the fact that like the Switch, you can take it with you. Yes, it's kind of a portable device. continue playing or... But at least with Nintendo and some other consoles or some other companies like Atari and... Uh, Sega, they will have um, handhelds yes. that will 
be part of a certain generation. And we'll talk about some of those, too. We'll talk about the important ones. We'll talk about... Game Boy. Game, Game Boy, Gear. of course. Uh, was so, it Virtual Boy? Was oh, it gosh. Virtual Boy? <laughs> yes, we'll talk about that, I'm sure. <laughs> Excuse me. But the eighth generation handheld from Nintendo is the 3DS. So... Yes. Who knows? We'll get to that, I'm sure, when we get to our last episode on this. Because we have the PlayStation... Something play, PlayStation's Neo. I thought it was the PlayStation. Well, we have PlayStation Four Pro. Yeah, but they're coming out with something called Neo, and Xbox oh. is coming out with something that's currently being called Scorpio. Within the next month, I'm sure we'll find out what that is because E E three is coming up. I wouldn't doubt that they're handheld portable. Um, no, I. I would say portable systems would be the best thing. Ah, uh, PlayStation I has their. Uh, I would Vita or Viva, Viva, and people who play Viva actually really love it. I love my PSP. I had one of the original like PSPs. That thing was. I got bored of mine. Awesome. Well, I played football games and race car games and stuff. You probably played. played. Of course, I have a 3DS, and I get I don't play that as much as I should. Oh, dude. So I want to get a 3DS just so I can play Pokemon. As bad as that, I mean the actual game Pokemon, not that Pokemon Go. Right, yeah. Pokemon's a really great time waster. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not into long-winded, portable games. I haven't touched Hearthstone in a while. Anyways, um, what was I going to say? I would love a portable Xbox, con- like like the Switch. Where you Maybe. can use it as a controller or you can play it on... Oh, could you imagine, like... I mean... That would be cool. I mean, they could do it. I mean, the controller's big enough. Could you imagine playing, like, Titanfall 2 or Battlefield 1? Leaving here... By the way, I have both those games, and both of them are incredible. Right. Uh, Is your controller there for us just talking about this? My favorite controller of all time? I mean, they could... I guess it depends on how big you'd want the screen. You can use that on a computer with Bluetooth. Oh, nice. But you know, I have the screen sitting under here. Yeah. And you can use a controller like, oh, I'm going, well, you hit the, the button. It, they'll probably do what uh, the Wii does, where they would cut it in half. And, and you then you slide it on. and Or it's built in. Well, it gives you the bigger screen, yeah. too, because... I'm not a fan of the PlayStation controller myself. Never, I don't never like have. the new one, especially. But anyways, we'll, we'll get into all that stuff. Right now, we're talking about Generation 1. Generation 1 were games that were built into the consoles, so no removable media. This is all in-chip, in the hardware. Uh, Entire gameplay only occupies one screen, so they never went on to the next screen. They never had the side-scrolling. It was always just, here's your screen. This is what you got to work with. You're playing Pong, basically. Uh, Players and objectives were made of basic lines, dots, and blocks. It was monochromatic. Ooh. Unless you put a little overlays on your TV. And audio was single channel if you had audio at all. Sometimes the consoles themselves would have little speakers on them for the boop, 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 boop. That sounds like Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. That's a horrible sound. Atari 2600's Pac-Man. <laughs> Why is that? Because I'll walk, 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 walk. I'll play for it. I'm... <laughs> I won't play it here now, and I might wait until our next episode to play it for you, <coughs> so you could just be surprised by it, but if anything, I'm not going to play it during this episode. We'll, we'll get to that. 
so our first ever video game console of all time is the Magnavox Odyssey. It used to be called the Brown Box. Now it has this weird shape to it. Let me... Actually, you bring it up. Search uh, Magnavox Odyssey. It was released September of 1972 in North America with the... You got a charger. Mine's at 4%. Uh, I'll, I'll look it up. Uh, with the introductory price of $99, we talked about that being uh, $579 in uh, 2017, which is this year. Our money. Had 28 games that require what looks like cartridges, but they're more like jumpers. So you put these yeah. slots in. Uh, 28 games that require... Where said that? The games are <laughs> on the, the chips hardwired in, hardwired in. The jumpers would inform the system of how many uh, small light boxes would be on the screen and what the boxes can do and can't do. <laughs> Let's see if I can look up Ralph Bear's brown box. So it cried jumpers. I don't know if you've heard that part. <laughs> uh, also requires overlays. Those are things you lay on top of your TV screen. Yeah. Because back then... Oh, that is ugly. Yeah, but it's a prototype. And it's just a bunch of knobs. That was the brown box. That's ugly. The Magnavox Odyssey isn't exactly a looker itself. <laughs> but the idea was to look cool and futuristic because it's the future. Um, in the year 2000. Let's see. The, the layovers would cling to your TV because of the static. Yes. And you had two different kinds depending on the size of your TV. Uh, some of the games were tennis, of course. Hockey, football, skiing, submarine game. Haunted House, Geography, Mathematics. The graphics are extremely limited, but the idea of the console was completely revolutionary. The low graphics was the reason for the overlay. The uh, bright squares on a black background showed through the transparent overlays of hockey rinks or a haunted house. Uh, there was a casino game and overlay. This was the reason for the poker chips, dice, and fake money in the box and cards. Um. Yeah, they had like a roulette game and just play cards at home. We don't need a video game console for that. Yeah. Um. But this is new. This is brand new. Remember, is no that came in Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh. You could probably buy all that stuff too. You could probably buy a casino kit back in the seventies. Oh yeah, I'm sure. This. The, the overlays, they had one for roulette, and you're, the controls are these weird boxes with knobs on the side. You have three different knobs. Um, one was a horizontal control, one was vertical control, and one was the ball trajectory control called English. Oh, you know, yeah, we want yeah, to give yeah, it a little like English. Pull. Yeah, I got you, got you. So, uh, yeah, you control the, where the things go. So you can play roulette, so you just close your eyes and just go crazy like you would on an Etch-a-Sketch. And wherever it landed, that's what what the thing was. Why did they just make an Etch-a-Sketch et program? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, was, it was pretty rough. The, the cables for the controllers were thick and they didn't bend very well. And for an extra $25, you can get the rifle accessory for the shooting game or gallery game. And this was all powered by 6C batteries. 6C batteries. So you got five minutes of enjoyment out of it. Sure. The wire going from the TV is very long. Obviously, the idea was to have the console near the controllers instead of what we're used to today. There was also no power button. So to turn it on, you just put the 
you plugged it in. No, you you slid the. Well, you had batteries in it. Oh, that's right. So you slid batteries. the jumper thing in, and it'll whoop, turn on. It won't make that noise because it doesn't make any noise. It also had no on-screen scoreboards, which uh, that's why they give you a physical one. And the games were all two-player. You had to have two people. So if you're an only child, you're not going to get an Odyssey unless your parents love you and want to play with you. Um, the tennis game wasn't as structured as Pong. Not only could you move the paddles up and down, but you can move them left and right as well. This meant you could cross the center line because there was no real center line. The center line was the uh, overlay. Your TV, yeah. And uh, this this uh, also was because there was a center. No, I already said that. The, <coughs> the English knob can allow you to cheat and control the ball. So if you hit it over to the next person and they're about to hit it back, you can turn that third knob and it just goes whoop right around them. Uh, you as uh, somebody with brothers. We would have killed each other. Yeah. My brothers were the type of jerks that would pause Mario mid-jump. I used to do that, but not a lot. <laughs> I did it all the time. Football uh, is impossible to play without the overlay. A cardboard board uh, f with football m a football marker. So you had to have this board and a marker on it to say well this is the line of scrimmage and it's very elaborate on that. Uh, you had to go through the instruction manual like crazy just That's to understand that it. That's convenient. Well these are lessons that people were learning. So what the this wasn't the first attempt at a video game console if this wasn't the first attempt at a video game console, it wouldn't really be considered a video game. It requires a lot of imagination. Magnavox presents Odyssey, the electronic game of the future. Odyssey easily attaches to any brand TV, black and white or color, to create a closed circuit electronic playground. Odyssey gives you all the exciting action of hockey and 11 other challenging play and learning games for the entire family. Odyssey, a new dimension for your television. Now at your Magnavox dealer. He's listed in the yellow pages. Well, yes, you might as well go read a book. Go dig a hole in the backyard like I used to. Right? Clean out your trash can and swim in it. <laughs> uh, so then Magnavox... <laughs> Magnavox knew that Pong was a ripoff of, their, of uh, Ralph Bear's ping pong game, his table tennis game. Yes. So Ralph Bear suggested Magnavox sue Atari. They did, and when Bushnell swore he'd never seen the Magnavox before uh, the creation before the creation of Pong, all Magnavox had to do was pull out their guest book to find Nolan Bushnell's signature at the at one of the demonstrations. Dude signed a guest book when he went to go check out this uh, Magnavox Odyssey. Ah, uh, dummy. And so, yeah. <laughs> Atari didn't have the money to go to court so Magnavox took pity on the young company and offered a $700,000 settlement this was also a royalty fee for Atari to license the ping pong game or pong also as a benefit to Atari Magnavox went after all the other companies who were making pong ripoffs including Nutting and Bally Midway so these guys that turned Atari down to their benefit were now going getting sued by Magnavox because Magnavox owned the rights to the game. Well, see, I... They had... Like, Atari had a line on theirs in Pong. Yeah. 
that's a 10% change. I don't think they should have been able to get sued. Oh, yeah, I would say, obviously, the idea came from them. If they want... Uh, you know what? I can go get a hammer, add something to it that's revolutionary. Still a hammer. Right. And the thing, <laughs> the thing about it is they didn't go to court. If they went to court, then they might have won. Right. And but they didn't have the money to, to go to court. Yeah. So, so makes sense. Just, so the fact that Magnavox is now their partner, like, they came to him, hey, you stole our thing, and Bushnell or whoever at Atari was like, hey, you know, we really need your help here. We have all these people that are copying our idea. Like, our idea. Let's, uh, the two of us, let's, uh, can <laughs> right, you do us a huge favor? Can you go after them? Here, here's $700,000, which, what would $700,000 be today? I'm not entirely sure when this... A lot. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, if forty-five dollars is five hundred ninety-two or whatever, well, it's different years too. Inflation calculators. Oh, then it's right going to be three times as much because it's going to go up. It's the eighties now, right? Oh no, we're still in the early seventies. So this is three point eight million dollars that they're just like, here you go. Jeez. And now they so they own the license for the game. They're not going to get sued by Magnavox, and Magnavox goes after all these other companies, especially the people that could have had their uh, their foot in the, the the actual pong door. Right. Of course, Magnavox would probably go after them because they're a bigger company. So, Atari was never required to pay any further fees. Because of Atari's success, Nolan Bushnell became world famous as the father of the video game, even though he had kind of borrowed most of the ideas from other people. Meanwhile, Ralph Baer was kind of forgotten, even though he was the real father of the video game. Bushnell was fairly flamboyant, and the media just totally ate it up, and so he was always the one on the camera, and he was always just kind of, by default, the one credited with inventing video games. Magnavox must have known one of the rules of pop culture history. It doesn't matter who invented it, it matters what you do with that invention. We talked about that with Coca-Cola, we talked about that with McDonald's, and we'll talk about that with Mickey Mouse when we get to it. Right. Reminds and, me of Netflix. Not Netflix. Yeah, Netflix. They went to Blockbuster hmm. when they were brand new. Mm -hmm. Went to Blockbuster and said, hey, here's our idea. All right. They don't have to go anywhere. They can just order them off the internet. Yeah. We'll send them to them. They send them back when they're done. Blockbuster goes, hey, that'll never work. It'll never take off. And I laugh because I saw a vacant Blockbuster. Well, that's what like, Blockbuster was doing. behind um, trees. <laughs> yeah. Is that the old Blockbuster? <laughs> well, Blockbuster did that in their last But they years. did it. Wait, Netflix came, the guy who created Netflix yeah. came up and said, here's what I want to do. Here's my business, Franklin friend. Netflix. <laughs> yeah, Franklin Netflix. <laughs> and Blockbuster laughed at him. Who's laughing now? Right? Not you, because you're dead. But, uh... No, fair enough. <laughs> and just think, we used to rent Nintendos from there. Yeah, and the reason why they got away with renting video games, which I'm sure we'll get to, because we're also going to talk about um, Blockbuster soon. The re how they got away with it because they would make crappy copies of the uh, instruction manuals because they went, Nintendo and other companies went after them for renting their video games and they're right. like well, well um, the instruction manuals and they're like okay we'll just take those out 
and we'll put the instructions on the, the back cover. So. Ah, did not know that. That's when you had to learn how to play the game on your own. Yep. Good luck. That's what I did. <laughs> I never read the instruction manual. Nah, no, neither did I. So Pong was superior to the tennis game of the Odyssey, which is obvious. In 1972, before Pong, President Nixon visited China and invented the invited the country's ping pong team to play the American team. This boosted the popularity of ping pong in the country. When Pong hit, imitators jumped onto the bandwagon. The copycats were so obvious, Bushnell knew that they couldn't just rest on their laurels and ride the Pong craze until it reached the shore. He knew Atari needed to continue innovating, or, in this case, uh, of the first two games, make something someone else's idea better. You all right there? <laughs> Basically, what I just said was he needed to innovate, even though his innovations were taking ideas from other people. Hey, sometimes you gotta cheat to fit in. I'll tell you. Arcades after Pong uh, that came out were Space Race in 1973, Gotcha also in 1973, Grand Track in 1974, which used the steering wheel to control, which was. Bushnell was working on Tank oh. Now's the ice cream man <laughs> well, Speaking of which I could probably open up that window Tank Which uh, Was a two player One on one Tank I have played Tank Quack Which was basically Duck Hunt Yeah This inspired other video game companies To make more than Pong uh, Replications and the, and the video game industry was well on its way. Nuttingham Associates made Missile Radar, an idea Atari later stole for Missile Command. It's had 10% change, man. So to talk a little bit about the work environment of uh, Atari, we have Noam Bushnell who made a decree about the workplace standards. He wanted to foster a culture of fun and creativity. So in order to do that... Um, he, the the philosophy was as long as the work got done, it's okay to have fun. Right. Not that was a direct quote. That's just me boiling it down. He also wanted to uh, create a an environment of diversity and openness. He encouraged a hippie revolution atmosphere, and uh, sexual drug sexual and drug experimentation was encouraged. Also meant showing up and leaving work whenever you wanted, as long as you, as long as your work was getting done. Management were all in their late 20s and early 30s, and the employees huh. were mostly in their early 20s. At IBM at the time, you needed a white button-up shirt and a black tie. Getting work, getting work done was the most important thing. Did you put this away? Uh, yeah, I put it Okay, I thought it was trimming. I don't know. Most loved doing the work because it was fun. So... Continuing the consoles of the first generation, we have uh, one employee named Harold Lee who suggests the idea of making a version of Pong that can be plugged into your television at home, kind of like the Odyssey does. Yes. Um, most of 1974 was spent building a prototype system that could deliver Pong, but at an affordable cost for the average consumer. The whole game, game could fit on a single integrated circuit. When the Odyssey was invented, integrated circuits were too expensive. 
They were still pricey by 1974, but they were cheaper than they had been. Also, getting the entire game on one circuit cost, cut costs. Yeah, I mean, what do you need? Three lines that move up and down in a ball? And the score. And oh, the sound. They figured they didn't have the resources themselves to manufacture the number of machines to meet the proje- projected demand. In 1975, the Mini Pong console was ready for demonstration. Unfortunately, finding a distributor. I always say distributor weird. Distributor. Distributor became difficult at the price point of $99 or $450 today. Uh, toy stores wouldn't bite because their most expensive toy at the time was $29 or $131 today. G.I. Joe? I don't know if a G.I. Joe would be $131 today. It depends on the G.I. Joe, buddy. I'm going to guess and say probably be like a Barbie dream house type thing. Ah, uh, probably. Something big like that, big collections of, like, Hot Wheels. Although Hot Wheels are dirt cheap, even still. Uh, yes and no. Next, they tried the television re- retailers, like Ma- the uh, Ralph Bear did with Magnavox, to no success. Finally, they did find success with the largest retailer in the U.S. at the time, Sears Robux. Of course. They were directed to the sporting goods department because during the holidays, the sporting goods department becomes a ping pong table slash pool table department. Also, their previous year, they were very successful selling a home pinball game, and pinball is in bars, and pong is in bars. So, they, they connected the dots, A equals B, and B equals C, so A equals C. <laughs> named the Sears Telegames Sears promised to put it in all of their I don't know I'm reading like a robot Sears promised to put it in all of their 900 <laughs> stores which they're only at 695 stores as of last year I'm surprised there's that many open yeah. still it's weird when you go into Sears now it's 620 of those are uh, tire centers probably <laughs> <laughs> there's a uh there's a Family Guy joke now where he's like, oh, I'll just go to Sears. Get like, honey, Sears isn't what it used to be. And they go in and it's like Mad Max inside. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, they prompted to promote the system until... They promised to promote the system until the holiday season of 1975. But guess what? Atari, inventors of them electronic games put the quarters in, just made Pong for home TVs. Score keeping and all. Pong, invented by Atari. Now at last you can play at home. Don't win, darling. Come on back home. Atari couldn't distribute another system until the following year. So, that Christmas, 150,000 consoles... There's just a, that's the sentence I wrote. That Christmas, 150,000 consoles. I'm guessing were sold. <laughs> that same year, the Odyssey was just uh, discontinued and sold in its lifetime, 350,000, according to Ralph Bear. It might have been more, but so Magnavox also had uh, they they had spinoffs of the Odyssey, but the spinoffs were to limit what it would do, so it would also limit the price. 
1975, they had the 100, the Magno, or the Magnavox Odyssey 100, which was just tennis and hockey, and it was still powered by the 6C batteries. And then that same year, the Magnavox Odyssey 200, which had tennis, hockey, and smash, which was like squash slash racquetball. Uh, so you can play two to four players on the console, and it also still had the 6C batteries, or you can use a 9-volt battery. <laughs> just one 9-volt battery. Yeah. Or 6C batteries. Well, each C battery is only 1.5 volts. I, I understand that, but so why even give the option of the C batteries? Yeah, 6C batteries is equal to the same voltage as the 9-volt, which is crazy. Maybe the 9-volt was just invented then. Is it that pricey? <laughs> I mean, they're pretty pricey now, so... Yeah. Well, for obvious reasons. With the success of the telegames Pong, a second wave of Pong craze spread across the world. This meant that another wave of imitators spread too. This was in part thanks to the AY3-8500, which was an integrated circuit from general instruments made to output video to an RF mo modulator. This uh, made it easy for a company less adept to the complexities of computer hardware to create a video game system. So before you had people like Ralph Baer coming up with it and you had these hardware geniuses. Now, and you needed those type of people in order to make a Pong machine or an arcade. Now with this chip or this integrated circuit, you can, pretty much anybody can make it. Yeah. So, I mean, still, it was complex. It wasn't like just snapping your fingers and boom, it's done. Uh, in 1976, the Magnavox series continued with the 300, which uses that same that chip, the AY3-8500, and it has the same three games as the 200, but it has a difficulty setting on it now. Ooh! The 400 has the same as the 200, and it has automatic serving, uh, has on-screen scoring. Finally! Years later. Four years later, they added the score. Uh, the 500 which is the same as the 400, but the graphics were able to produce human characters using the humans for Smash and the field from hockey. They were able to add a fourth game called Soccer. I know I said soccer as if it's this foreign idea. This new sport that just came out? Soccer? Well, electronic new game. In 1977, they uh, upped the number to 2,000, which is basically an updated version of the 300, which is single player, which had single player smash. Ooh. Uh, 3000, which had tennis, hockey, smash, also had basketball, soccer, grid ball. And you can change the difficulty, manual or automatic serve, uh, the speed of the ball, and the angle it's hit at. The 4000 features tennis, hockey, volleyball, basketball, knockout, tank, and helicopter. It also has a pause button. What? You know that thing we got rid of? We still technically have it. Uh, and then they had a prototype. They were working on 5,000, but it never went anywhere. We also had the TV tennis, electro tennis. Don't have any research on that. Ooh, watch out now. The Benetone TV Master. These are all just Pong machines. And they'll have yeah. variations of Pong, just like the other, like hockey or whatever. And then uh, we had Radio Shack's TV scoreboard which came out in 1976. Uh, player 1 had a long controller, like long remote type controller, with many buttons and dials and switches, and player 2 had this little, the, just a dial that detached from the player 1 
controller. And that was the whole baseball. Uh, no, just for two player. Uh, you can play four games: tennis, squash, football, and practice. There's also a version that came out with a gun, so you can also play skeet and target practice. Those two fabulous games. And then a company from Connecticut who specialized in leather invented the uh, Telstar series. This company, if you take their what they were, the Connecticut Leather Company, and squished it up, they made Coleco. Coleco Vision. Not yet. Um, models that came out in 1976 were the Telstar, just called the Telstar. Had three games: tennis, hockey, and handball. Handball. Handball, which was basically racquetball. You're watching the most exciting game you will ever see on your TV set. Telstar by Coleco, with three different games. Telstar Tennis, with digital scoring, variable speeds. Telstar Hockey, each player controls a goalie plus a forward on the other side. Oops, a goal. And Telstar Singles Handball, a game you play yourself. Telstar Handball, Tennis, Hockey, all three at an exciting low price. For great family fun, hitch your TV to a Telstar. And uh, change between the games using a switch on the console, which is different, sort of. Uh, they had the Telstar. Power switch. Yeah. Well, that was different. All right. I mean, I think so. They had Tel Telstar Classic, which was the same as the original, but it was a wood finish. Oh. In 1977, you had the Telstar Deluxe, also known as the Video World of Sports. Which is the same as the previous system, but this is what they released in Canada, and also the console was a different color. They also they had 1977 as well the Telstar Telstar Ranger, which has the original three games. Also has Jai Lai. It's like handball, but you catch the ball. And detachable controllers, uh, light gun for skeet shooting, target practice, and a black and white casting or casing. Sorry, I have Telstar Alpha. Which is a budget model, sold very well because of its lower price. Same games as the Ranger, but without the gun and gun-related games. They had Telstar Colormatic, detachable controllers. Same games as the Alpha, but in color. <laughs> Woo! Uh, <you> <laughs> Telstar Regent, which is the same as the Colormatic, but no color. And then you had Telstar Combat, which is the four variations on tank games. And these actually came with joysticks, and green it had a green military look. Of course they did. This is combat in the field, and in your home. New Telstar Combat, the video tank game with two-fisted controls found in real tanks, so you can maneuver all over the battlefield, dodge mines, one mistake, and reload, aim, fire. The score mounts, the battle quickens, turn, fire. Telstar Combat gives you four different battle games. So hit your TV to a Telstar. Telstar Combat by Coleco. In 1978, which this generation, well, all generations will overlap each other. So we're actually, by 1978, already in the second generation of video games by like two years. Right. But Pong Machines just kept coming out and coming out and coming out. So you had the Telstar Sportsman, which is just like a Regent, but has the light gun and... and Two gun games, and a few more switches. The Telstar Colortron, which is four Ooh. game very or four pong game variations. Uh, Built-in controls, push button instead of switches, because the switches could be known to break off 
or become difficult to move. This one was also in color. It's small and compact. It's a small compact machine and it has sound, just like the Ice Cream Man who's coming back. He's leaving, I think. Oh, what do I know? Let's get closer. We had to tell a star marksman, which is similar to the sportsman, but the gun <laughs> had detachable parts so like a stock and barrel. Because you need to put your gun, take it apart and put it together before you use it. Exactly, you know? and it also had a scope. Was that like the Lee Harvey Oswald edition? Too soon. And what? Uh, <laughs> How do you... <laughs> Anyways, it still had the same six games as the sportsman, <laughs> and it was in color. Game's over. Not in my house. Hey, a video games. Telstar Marksman by Coleco. Wow, my kids have been bugging me for one. Ah, these video cartridge games cost a bundle, huh? Not a cartridge game. In fact, the whole shooting match cost about what you pay for some cartridges alone. Yeah, my boy likes hockey, too. Hockey! Hockey! <laughs> and my Sarah's a tennis freak, you know. Turn this new on. Yeah, Handball, ski, Telstar Marksman by Coleco. The price is right on target. Yeah, the Telstar Galaxy, which is a four-player console, two built-in controllers and two detachable ones. The Telstar Gemini, which had no Pong, and it was just shooting games and pinball games. Pinball controls were on the side of the console itself. And then we have the most interesting one, the Telstar Arcade. This is a triangular-shaped console. Each side had a different control scheme. Okay. One was a steering wheel for racing. One was Pong machine, or Pong controls. And another was the light gun. So you turn it and in the center you actually put in cartridges sort of thing. And they were triangular cartridges. It's a very bizarre looking thing. Let me look it up for you real quick. Telstar. Telstar. Not Telstar. 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 Holy cow. See? We got telephones like that in our uh, <laughs> offices. Hold on, the, hold on, let me see that picture again. How big was that steering wheel? It's a decent size. How big was that? The triangle like box? Yeah, I would probably say like that tall. No, it's not that tall. It sat on your. It, I would say about from like the top of the books to there. Oh, crazy! Seems like a lot to put on one little box. Yes, sir. So the Pong craze returns uh, thanks to the Pong machines coming out. You have uh, Pong and its variations were pretty much the only games you could play at home. At first, it was exciting and new. After a while, people began to desire very, uh, variety, especially since the arcades were entering their golden age in 1976. We had Breakout from Atari. Woo, Breakout! Do you know who created Breakout? Uh, Marty Mishimoto? Well, this is Atari. <laughs> I know Atari is a Japanese name, but... So... And I'm just... This isn't written down. This is basically from memory. Uh, the idea came from Bushnell and Al Alcorn, I believe. And they had one of their game designers. They gave him the idea. And they told him, We'll give you a bonus if you can make it with as few chips as possible. Huh. So he's like, Okay, cool. So he goes and makes it, or he goes and asks his friend, hey, can you help me make this? And if you help me make this, then you'll get half of the bonus that I get, which is $700, which was a lie because the bonus that he was going to get was like $5,000. So he's just going give to give his friend 350 and his friend did most of the work. 
his friend was a genius in computers. Well, yeah, the fact that he had to go to his friend to do it to begin with. So his friend, the he later found out about this being lied to about the uh, the the, num- the the price that he was paid for a bonus, and it it messed with him a little bit because he's like, okay, I thought he was my, my friend kind of thing, but because of him using he was working at Hewlett Packard at the time, and because of him making the circuit board for this arcade game, he went. It, it, it pushed him towards making his own personal computer. Was it Woz? Steve Wozniak, and his friend was Steve Jobs. Yeah, well, of course. So, this game that they made together... I had a feeling that's who you are talking about. I wasn't quite sure, because I don't know that right. part of it, really, the, but... The game that they, they made together inspired Wozniak to make the Apple one. Right. And, you know, they started Apple because of it. So I love playing the games as well as designing them. And I designed Breakout for Atari. Steve Jobs got that order from the, the owner of Atari. I designed the whole thing and it was really an incredible project because I designed things with very few parts. And Atari was getting tired of their engineers designing games with 150 chips and 190 chips. I did all a Breakout in 45 chips. Back then, hardware games, I'm sorry, it's not like software. This was a half a man year project. And I was like one of the greatest designers ever. I was working on the iPhone 5 of its day, the hottest gadget product in the world. It was the Hewlett Packard Scientific Calculator. So I didn't have that much leeway. I did choose the number of bricks. I don't think that was a, a big issue. But well, I had a 256-bit RAM. So you might as well, so it's gonna be 128 bricks or it's gonna be 256 bricks. It was a real fun project, but since I've already done Pong. So it's really just an extension of a game where you've already programmed a game that has paddles and balls that can move at different angles and speeds. It's just putting in the reflection and counting when you hit bricks. There was no name when I did the project at all, no name assigned. So when Atari came out with it, they chose a name. And Steve Jobs was no longer at Atari. Right after we finished the game, he went up to Oregon, bought into that orchard or whatever it was. And so Atari came up with the name on their own. They paid Steve Jobs, and then he paid me half the money, supposedly. Steve should have been more open and honest with me. He should have told me, yeah, I'm really getting thousands for this, but I'll pay you this much. He should have said, I need the money to buy into a farm in Oregon. And I would say, take it all. I don't need an income. I've got a job as an engineer. I don't need the money. I didn't need the money. <laughs> I just enjoy games for enjoyment. Life is about, the first thing you need is the necessities of life, which is food. So I call it one of the three F's, food. The second F is fun. Every kind of entertainment, including games, concerts, movies. The other is friends, so the three Fs. And when I told that story to our high school, when they put me in the Hall of Fame at the high school, the kids started laughing. And I said, there might be a fourth F. Another game was uh, Death Race from X-City, which was the first video game to uh, receive backlash for its violence. Which one? Death Race. Oh. Oh. Yeah. It eventually became another game, I can't remember the name, where you would run people down and they'd become graves. Carmageddon? No. It's a good game, though. <laughs> <laughs> so we're up to... We're, we're hanging out in the 1977 era. I know we talked about games and consoles that came out in 1978 and, and I think some 1979. But uh, we have an issue now in the games market at this point with way too many consoles doing 
pretty much the same thing. And just flooding with crappy games. The flooding the market with the same game over and over and over again. And people obviously I mean, reading through the Telestar, reading through the Odyssey games, it's like, well this one's an Odyssey two hundred and this one's an Odyssey three hundred. What's the difference? And oh is this one better than this one? And, you know, like how can I tell oh, this one's the Telestar Galaxy. Or yeah. This is the Telstar Gemini. What what's the difference? You know, they have the internet for reviews. They can find out from people that, oh well, this game is horrible, but this game's great. So, um, too many machines, too many variations of this of similar machines coming out from the same companies. This was before you could, like I said, the internet, uh, I already talked about that. So the Pong mania of the 1970s ended, but video games continued. Now what saved video game consoles? A little thing called the microprocessor, and a gift from Atari to launch home consoles to the next level. And that is where we're going to stop with the history aspect of this episode. And we're going to move on to the next episode, or we're going to continue when we get to the next episode. Um, do you have... We'll talk about the legacy for a little bit. Do you have any memories of Pong? Yes. I but, mean, sorry. I was young. Uh, we didn't. We had a Nintendo. We didn't have a Pong like... Oh. We didn't. Like, we had friends that did. But, yeah, I remember playing Pong with just the, the little spinny joystick like a joystick really a dial yeah just, like you're turning up the radio <laughs> but yeah I remember playing that when I was a kid cracking a safe right yeah <laughs> I got it I got it <laughs> but uh no I think my brothers played it more than I did because they were obviously older four and six years older than I am uh-huh. so but yeah I remember playing it uh, as a kid but like I said we ended up getting our Nintendo and 80 something. I was probably like seven or six or so when we got it. And you got it early, so we'll save that story for when we get to the NES. Um, like I said, I've never really played Pong. These first couple generations, I was born in 84, so I was born after the heyday of Atari. Um, right. Well, I was young when oh yeah. the heyday of Atari was still going on. Um, maybe almost ending, I guess, technically. I mean, the way it. We'll we'll get into we'll get into that. that later, but I'm just or another actually dreadful. in eighty one was about its peak, so we'll see. There you go. Ah, uh, so we'll talk. Let's talk about the impact. So the most obvious impact of the first generation of video games is the birth of the multi billion dollar industry. Of course, yeah. Uh, as a start, uh, it all started very crude, but it has become far more advanced than anyone could have. Possibly a lot of advancements in technology because of video games. There's a uh, video of it, I don't know if you ever heard of the angry video game nerd, but he yes. goes through the Odyssey. He goes through the Pong machines, and at the end of one of the episodes, he goes, "Could you imagine like being somebody from the '70s and just playing this, and then get basically transported to the you know 2010 or whatever, and going to play Xbox?" Because that was like when the game was, or the the video was made, and playing this, like, what is this Grand Theft Auto? Maybe they might actually have like color and sound. And then he goes and plays it, and he's just like pretending to be like, oh my gosh, just imagine <laughs> what it would do to somebody's brain playing something like GTA or Call of Duty. <laughs> I think about that now. There's th- I, that those games have like tainted me. 
because like I could be outside chilling, right? Whatever. Look up and see a plane go. Where's my rocket launcher? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> I could take them. <laughs> it's funny because you know how people are like, well, you kids and your this and that. You don't understand what it's like for us. And I will look back on things. I'll look. I get a little offended when people are like treat when they'll treat me like I'm part of the I don't know anything crowd somebody mentioned we got cassette tapes for the opening of the Guardians of the Galaxy ride they're blank so you get to put your own mixtape on it what yeah let me pull it out real quick if I can move I mean, that's I can't. cool and kind of dumb at the same time I mean dude this is the kind of stuff that makes me mad because that would yeah. be cool it's blank, but uh, uh, see that doesn't matter. That that, and this is supposed to be like the late '80s, right? Well, I don't know, because the first one was the '60s and '70s. Well, the first, not not the type of music, but Guardians of the Galaxy, or sorry, Peter Quill leaves Earth in like '88 or '87. '87, yes. And so cassette. Boxes didn't look like this in '87. They didn't get to look like that until like '92. Well, no, they were like this, but they, they weren't like all. They weren't all cool like that. I agree yeah. with you on that. And, uh, but when it comes, my point of bringing this up was when I see Pong and the Odyssey and the early stuff, that generation especially. And I'll get into the Atari Twenty Six Hundred in the next episode. But that episode or that generation. I would have been, I would have, I am not cut out for that generation of video games. Well, it's because what you got now. Well, yeah, sure, but even as a kid, I don't think Back I, then, it was new. You didn't have anything like that. What was the coolest thing, that vibrating football board? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I mean, pinball, obviously it was pinball. pinball but you had to go to play pinball, because you yeah. never had, unless there's that one rich kid who had, like, a pinball machine, or the guy with the tabletop, or table tennis. Right, well, back then that stuff was all expensive. Not so much now. Trampoline. Right. So, woo. I would, then my question to you is, if you were sent back right now, sent back in time to 1976, and would you, what would your reaction be to video games? If I came from this time now. Right, if, sent back to if right now when we say good night to the podcast, and all of a sudden, boom, we're back in 1976. Obviously, our phones can't come. Uh, none of this would come. Right, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> as long as my shoes come, that's, that's uh, all. Uh, your VHS tapes would barely be there. Actually, I don't think any of those VHSs will make it. Well, maybe not those VHSs, but you. Well, no, you're. No, because they wouldn't. Nineteen seventy-six. No, yeah, nothing. No. Star Wars would make it. Yeah, it's true. Boy. Disney, your hat might. Maybe. <laughs> but well, I'm not. I'm not talking about what. You're, what would I? What, would I be able to like be in awe? Or would you? Oh, I. I don't. I, I don't, think I. I, I think I would be in, like still in awe because you're there at the birth. Well, yeah, that you know of what it is that we have now. Would I guess my question is. How long until you start ripping out your hair and going, I can't stand this? Uh, <laughs> or would you just learn to go, it's cool? 
If I got transported to '76, so I could go see Led Zeppelin in concert. That would be my. That would think. <laughs> I think that would honestly be like my biggest thing. I can go see bands that I've yeah. always wanted to go see. Like I've seen the Eagles. Yeah. You know whatever, but there's a lot of bands out there that you know will never ever go yeah, see. You'll hear somebody go, Michael Jackson coming out with a solo album. I don't think that's gonna. <laughs> they're gonna go Michael Jackson's first solo album. Like oh, this is gonna make millions. <laughs> you know <laughs> what is his first solo album I don't remember bad no well, no not even close um, <laughs> I couldn't even tell you the name of it but I know his first popular one was off the wall so that was like 79 oh said okay there you go rabbit trails uh, so for the first time as we as humans were able to I lost my train <laughs> for the first time <laughs> for the first time as humans, we were able to change what we saw on the screen, and it was fun for that generation. Definitely. Its legacy will always be as the first, and it may not have been the first video game ever, but... This is Pong. It may not have been the first video game ever, but it was the first one to become a household name, a beginning that inspired a generation. That is true. So... But even though, think about that. I mean, all these people are like, oh, Pong, Pong. You gotta admit, after a month, man, you'd be like, ah, I'm kind of sick of Pong. Exactly. I would. That that's that's the. It's unofficially called the video game crash in 1977. Everybody right. knows about the video game crash. It's going to be in our next episode. Yes. But this was the video game crash in 1977. That is lesser known, and. At the same time, re- relief was on the way. It was already right. in the car, almost there. Sort of. And we'll get into all that. Dude, I, so many games. For, I had one called Kangaroo Knockout. You were a kangaroo fighting people. <laughs> but then again, like Nintendo had games like anticipation yeah we'll get we'll get into all those games we'll, we'll get to talk about every this, console I still to this day have no idea how to play that game honestly I have no idea I didn't, I didn't have any idea that we'd actually be able to talk this much about this generation of video games because even though neither of us were there yeah but I think we've read enough on video games over there, but, years but we both know and as, Jimmy still has his Atari in all his games right but we both know as you, you were a trainer so you've taught. Um, you both know that experiencing it is different than reading about it and learning about it and oh, definitely. watching it. So from that perspective, we can't really speak to it, I think, for the next episode. And I do the same thing with Atari where I waited until the last second to say, their name's Atari. I do the same thing with the 2600. 20, <laughs> right. And uh, I'm spoiling it like crazy that it's going to be 2600 next, but whatever. So, when we get to that, I think whenever we record that, we'll I'll download a ROM so we can try playing some of the games. Uh, well, twenty six hundred just Atari games in general. Yeah, Atari twenty six hundred. Uh, I I think I have all of them. Do you have a original twenty six hundred or a flashback? Uh, I want to say they're original twenty six hundred. I haven't played them in so long. Well, I don't have a console. Well, it's not a console; it's a computer. Oh, okay. It's a yeah, ROM. Oh, it's, yeah, through, yeah. Uh, it's through it's through emulator. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't have an actual... Jimmy does. His works, we can see if we can borrow his for a day. That'd be cool. And 
Because I would definitely like to experience the systems. We can experience the Nintendo Entertainment System. We can experience the Sega Genesis. Um, you have a PlayStation, so we can experience I play, that. I have Nintendo 64. That's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can... Uh, I don't have anything from the sixth generation that we can play. But anyways, we're, we're going way off track here. Before we go, we have a couple things. We have the pop quiz question. Ooh, okay. So I'm going to try to get that a pop quiz answer from last episode and a pop quiz question from this episode from now on. I'm starting to learn how much each episode, how much writing will translate into an episode. Right now, we've been recording for an hour and 46. A lot of it's going to get cut out. Some stuff's going to get put back in for the, the cutaways. Right. I think I've pretty much figured it out. Right on. So as long as the episode is between, I think the last one was like an hour and 25, because we were talking about lawsuits and stuff like that for McDonald's. Right. But the aim is always 90 to 120. Um, so the pop quiz question is, Nolan Bushnell may have borrowed the idea for... for Nolan Bushnell may have borrowed the idea for Pong from Ralph Bear's Brown Box, but Bear got his revenge on Bushnell and Atari. Atari had an arcade game called Touch Me. This game didn't catch on for Atari, but when Ralph Bear took this idea and created his own version, but handheld, it became a cultural icon and a custom source of nostalgia for anyone old enough to remember it. What was the name of this handheld device that Bear is better known for? I Don't. think I know. I think I know. <laughs> then we better get out of here. I'll give you the afterwards. 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 I'll see if I'm right. So our next episode, <laughs> we're going to talk about how Atari sells out. We're going to talk about uh, the introduction of the cartridge, the video game cartridge. That's actually not good for it. Uh, and the infamous video game crash of 1983. Oh, yeah, you're spitting out hot air into the... <laughs> no matter how dry you make your breath, it's still full of moisture. Still, That's yeah. why when you go... <sighs> That's why we're like, I used to go like this. <laughs> like my shirt's going to stop all yeah. the moisture from going in. <laughs> you know what that really did? And we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the actual Nintendo episode. Just taking it out and putting it back in was really what did it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, it cleans off the yeah. the connectors. <laughs> so, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can go to at PopUPodcast on Twitter. Twitter. If, if you want to see or, or listen to our other episodes, <coughs> I mean, you can see them. They're, you can see the actual files. But if you want to listen to us or listen to the other episodes, you can go to SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. I should probably try to get us onto Windows at some point. Windows phones. <laughs> People have that. Who? I know Iggy did. My uh, ex had one. Look what happened to her. <laughs> Don't do it. Windows phones blow. I'm not going to go there. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I will say that I had a Windows phone before they went to their new style that matched all their you know, Windows 10 and yeah. Xbox style. Uh, but anyways, go to 
these four places soundcloud itunes stitcher google play and search pop culture university and we should be the only thing that comes up well the the first thing that comes up it's a little t-shirt that says property of that's right that's pretty cool so uh that's gonna do it for this episode come back next time and after that another time and then again and then again because this is gonna be a long one for us uh pop culture university podcast we were your hosts and instructors michael gaddy smithers also known as joe guadney see I'd say smithers Head see that was funny it was when you talked about lester and you mentioned that at the end of the third episode of mcdonald's and that was brought up in like the beginning of the second episode or the beginning of the first episode <laughs> Lester. Lester, the, the rat from Beacon's World. Anyways. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Michael Gaddy, that's me. Joe Guadney, that's me. Class dismissed. Joe.